A year after Moses is handed the laws at Mount Sinai, the Israelites have failed to morph into a euphoric, liberated nation. Instead, they've become a bunch of disgruntled hecklers. As a result, the journey from the Nile Delta to the promised land of Canaan stalls, and there are even more roadblocks ahead. The travels and travails of the Jewish people during this time is chronicled in the Bible's next book. The theme of the mathematically named Book of Numbers is generally one of counting and spying. But at least there's action, eventually. After a whole book consisting almost entirely of a man standing at the entrance to an elaborate tent and channeling rules which readers are told are from God, adrenaline junkies are desperate for some blood and thunder. Will they get it? My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 34 a cocktail of curses. Welcome back to another episode of Holy Bible, the podcast that takes you on a leisurely ride through the entirety of the Bible. So, season four. We're now four books in, which feels like an achievement. If this is your first taste, you may wish to head back to episode one for a little context. You'll notice that I don't follow the same labelling as the Bible when telling it. In the Bible, many chapters are broken into smaller sections, each with a helpful heading. The titles of my episodes aren't taken from these, as I'm trying to steer away from the kind of religious speak that suggests you need to be in the club to understand it. I also don't tell listeners the chapters and verses we're covering, as this doesn't feel essential to the story. For those who are interested in mapping our route through the 66 books that make up the Bible, I put the chapters we cover each episode in the show notes. As ever, my belief remains that the Bible belongs to all of us, not just religious people. So here is the book of Numbers, not something that you can pull from the shelf of your local bookstore and not a book that a huge number of secular people in the 21st century have a good working knowledge of. Okay, we're going in. Confusingly for Bible purists, the book of Numbers contains several events that appear to have already been described in the book of Exodus. The manna and quail, the defeat of the Amalekites and water bursting from a rock are among several stories that are given a second airing. Bible experts are divided on whether these incidents just happen to be similar or whether they are the same event described by different authors. In fact, assigning authors to these early chapters in the Bible is somewhat of a can of worms. Experts believe that the Pentateuch, the Bible's first five books, was edited together by exiled Jews living in Persia sometime after 550 BC using four main sources, three of which had a hand in this particular book. The Yahwist refers to God as Yahweh and sees Sinai as the mountain where laws were handed to the people of Israel. The Elohist refers to God as Elohim, uses the name Horeb instead of Sinai, and refers to Israel as Ephraim, possibly as this is the tribal area where they are writing. The third source is the priestly one, which knows God as El Shaddai, and is preoccupied by religious ritual and Israel's priesthood. The Book of Numbers is believed to contain a mix of Yahwist and Elohist writings, edited and pulled together by the priestly source. The first five chapters of the book dedicate themselves to the arrangement of the Israelite camp into tribal groups and kicks off with the official headcount, which gives the book its name. 
The action, such that it is, picks up in exactly the same location where the book of Leviticus left off, somewhere in the vicinity of the tabernacle at the foot of Mount Sinai. Here, the book relates how God asks Moses to count every man in the camp aged 20 and over who is fit to fight. One man from each tribe is to help him with the counting, and the book lists the names of these leaders. The census takes place on the first day of the second month, which equates to either late April or early May, and Moses and Aaron gather the clans in readiness for the head count. Each man aged over 20 or above registers his clan and his family. The total amount of men numbers just over 600,000, which suggests that the probable number of Israelites under Moses' command is roughly 2.5 million. The largest of the 12 tribes is Judah, with over 76,000 men, while the smallest is Manasseh, with just 32,500. The idea behind the census appears to be to establish the number of troops which Israel has at its disposal as it readies itself for the conquest of Canaan. Levites are not counted, as their role is to look after the tabernacle and its furnishings rather than fight Israel's battles. These guardians of the sanctuary are to camp around the tabernacle and to set it up and take it down each time Israel moves on. Anyone else who tries to dismantle or assemble the holy tent is warned that they will be put to death, and the purpose of having the Levites camp around the tent appear to be to form a kind of human shield to prevent any incursions from rogue Israelites whose actions might defile the camp's holiest place. Moses then arranges the location of each tribe within the camp. With a tabernacle at the centre surrounded by Levites, the rest of the tribes arrange themselves in a square at what the Bible describes as some distance from the sacred epicentre. Each side of the square contains three tribal camps, led by Judah, Reuben, Ephraim and Dan. Each of these divisions is to fly a battle standard to identify it, and each family encampment is to fly its own banner one of the earliest recorded examples of graphic design, and one which makes it simple to locate everyone in what must look like a sea of canvas. Some experts in ancient warfare suggest that the tribal battle standards bear images of the animals which Jacob likens his sons to in his final blessing in the book of Genesis. So Judah's would be a lion, Dan's a serpent, and Benjamin's a wolf. The eastern edge of the camp is made up of the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The eastern tribes are more numerous, and as their camp faces the entrance to the tabernacle, they are seen as guards. For this reason, they will march out first when the camp sets off towards Canaan. Moving in a clockwise direction, the next set of tribes are Reuben, Simeon and Gad, who occupy the area immediately south of the tabernacle. This southern cohort led by Reuben will set out behind Judah's eastern division. Each family has a set place to camp within their tribal group and are expected to set out in that same order under their own flag. After Reuben has fallen in behind Judah, the Levites are to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings. The Levites form the centre of what is looking more like a troop movement than a jumble of refugees, and behind them the western tribes of Manasseh and Benjamin are led by Ephraim. Bringing up the rearguard to the north is Dan, leading the tribes of Asher and Naphtali. All twelve leaders of the tribal groups are named, and the Book of Numbers tells readers that the Israelites camp under their standards and set out exactly according to the directives which Moses has received from God. 
tribal camping and marching arrangements have been laid down, it's time to mobilise the men who will assist Aaron and his sons with their duties at the tabernacle. Readers are told that Nadab and Abihu both died without having sons to succeed them as priests, which is why their brothers Eleazar and Ithamar stepped in to replace them. According to the book, God orders Moses to summon the entire tribe of Levi. There's no way that the three ordained priests can oversee the entire function and practical day-to-day running of the tabernacle services, let alone dismantle and reassemble the structure when the camp moves. For this reason, the tribe of Levi is given as a resource to Moses to use as his tabernacle workforce, and Moses is reminded that any renegade Israelite who tries to muscle in on the action must be killed. It is now that God explains to Moses how separating the Levites from the rest of the tribes and dedicating them to the tabernacle replaces the need for the Israelites to hand over their firstborn sons to him. The entire Levite tribe stands in for these sons. God explains that when he slaughtered the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, he spared the firstborn male Israelites, whether human or animal, and so they belong to him. Moses is asked to count the number of male Levites aged over one month old. From Levi's original three sons, Gershon, Kohath and Merari, there are now eight clans, who among them number 22,000 men, boys and babies. Each of the clans is given specific duties at a set place to camp. Gershon's people are to camp immediately to the west of the tabernacle, and their area of responsibility is to care for the fabric of the tent itself, its curtains, coverings and ropes. Kohath's clans camp to the south of the tabernacle and are responsible for the ark and all the other interior furnishings, and Aaron's son Eleazar is placed in charge of this group. Eleazar is also named as overall leader of the Levites. Mirari's clans are responsible for the wooden framework of the tabernacle, which includes the crossbars, bases and poles. His camp is to the north of the tabernacle. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron and his two sons camp to the east and oversee the overall care of the tabernacle, and their position near the entrance to the tent also makes them guardians of who is allowed to enter. For the third time in as many chapters, Moses is warned that non-Levites who try and crash the party face execution. Moses then counts the number of males in the whole camp who were the firstborn sons in their family, and the number comes to 22,273. Given that there are only 22,000 male Levites, there aren't quite enough of them to represent all the firstborns, and so 273 non-Levites must pay five shekels each to balance the books. Which of these men need to pay isn't stated, but it would most likely be the last 273 to be counted. The 1,365 shekels of silver amounts to just over £33 in weight and is handed over to Aaron and his sons to use as they see fit. The practicalities of dismantling the tabernacle apparently can't be left to the vagaries of human agency. Strict laws are put in place as to how everything should be packed away and moved. At this point, God tells Moses and Aaron to count all the middle-aged Kohathite men, those aged from 30 to 50. This is because the duties he's about to assign them are both sacred and physical ones, and so younger men might not be up to the task. The clan has already been given the responsibility of moving the ark and the other tabernacle furnishings, and now these men are told exactly what this entails. First, 
Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar must remove the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. Presumably using the curtain as a shield so they don't see the ark itself, they are to drape it over the sacred golden chest. Over this goes a durable leather cover and over this some blue cloth. The poles are then inserted and the ark is ready to move. Another blue cloth is to be draped over the table and on this is placed all the utensils which in turn are covered in a scarlet cloth with a hard-wearing and waterproof animal skin placed over it. The lampstand and all its accessories are to be wrapped in blue cloth and leather and placed on a special carrying frame. The altar of incense is also to be draped in blue cloth and leather and all the bowls and censers wrapped in blue cloth and also placed on a carrying frame. The frames used to carry the lampstand and the utensils for the altar of incense aren't described in the Bible and it seems that the Kohathites have to cobble together their own carrying devices which are believed to have resembled a sedan chair. All the ashes are to be removed from the large bronze altar and purple cloth is to be placed over it. On top of this are laid all the firepans, forks, shovels and sprinkling bowls before the whole shebang is covered in hides and has its carrying poles slotted into it. Only when Aaron and his sons have covered up the holy contents of the tabernacle can the Kohathites begin to move them, but these holy porters may only touch the poles. Yet again, the book reminds readers that anyone who touches any sacred item from the tabernacle unsolicited will die. It seems a severe rule, but one which drills home how utterly special these items and the God who they are built for should be to the Israelites. Eleazar is placed in charge of the oil for the lamp, the incense, the showbread and the anointing oil. He's also ultimately in charge of the entire tabernacle. God asks Moses to ensure that the Kohathite clans don't die out so that there will always be dedicated and able-bodied men whose duty it will be to move the holy tent and all its sacred paraphernalia. For safety's sake, Aaron and his sons are to oversee the men at all times to ensure that none of them try and catch a glimpse of any of the holy accessories. If they try this on, they will die. The fifth time God has now pointed this out to Moses. With the Kohathites organised, God now needs to create to-do lists for the other two Levite divisions. The Gershonite clans are responsible for all the fabric of the tabernacle complex and God asks Moses to count all the men aged 30 to 50. Their roles aren't especially elaborated on beyond curtain carrying. The cargo which they need to load up includes all the curtains from the tent, the perimeter fence fabric, the curtains that form the entrance and all the hides from the roof as well as the ropes that anchor them. Again, these sacred Sherpas can't just decide what to pack up themselves. The whole process needs to be stage managed by Aaron and his sons, with Ithamar as the ultimate chain of command. Ithamar also finds himself in charge of the Merorite clans, whose role it is to haul the posts, crossbars, bases, ropes and pegs. Again, no work can be done unless Ithamar has personally given it the green light. Moses, Aaron and the tribal leaders count 2,750 Kohathites, 2,630 Gershonites and 3,200 Merorites. The numbers suggest that these have been rounded off. In all, there are 8,580 men to dismantle, carry and reassemble the tabernacle. It's such a large number that giving everyone a task and ensuring that chaos doesn't ensue is a challenge, making sense of appointing three men to have the final say before any task is carried out. Even then, 
Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar must wait for God to give Moses the signal before any hand can be laid on any item in this most holy marquee. With the directives on moving the camp over, the Book of Numbers turns its attention to the kind of rules and regulations that fill the Book of Leviticus. Purity is clearly very important at the Israelite camp, and Moses is told to shoo away anyone who has one of the skin diseases or bodily discharges which are seen as unclean, as well as anyone who has touched a dead body. According to the Book of Numbers, the Israelites take this directive very seriously and follow the rules to the letter. The Bible can come across as somewhat OCD when it comes to cleanliness, but God sees himself as 100% pure, so anything that is richly contaminated is believed to lessen that purity. God also appears to be concerned about people who have wronged each other in a way that shows a lack of faith in him. The suggestion is that they have perhaps lied about or tried to cover up their offence. These people need to own up to what they have done and compensate for the damage, he says, with the extra 25% added on. The Jewish rule for repaying stolen or carelessly damaged property includes a hefty surcharge. If there is no one left to compensate, the money needs to be paid to the priests, as that money belongs to God. Given that these men earn nothing, their access to restitution money allows them to survive and reminds anyone else that God sees priests not as a luxury, but as an essential. On top of the money, a ram must also be sacrificed in order to get the wrongdoer back in moral credit. On the subject of potential subterfuge, God draws Moses' attention to wives who are having secret extramarital relationships and appears to understand that marital infidelity can cover up its tracks very well. A woman might sneak off for a midnight rendezvous without her husband or any other witness seeing. But through some kind of sixth sense, her spouse can't help knowing that something is going on. The suspicious husband is told to take his case to the priests, along with three and a half pounds of the cheapest, coarsest barley flour, possibly to reflect the alleged fallen state of the woman. Numbers describes the gift of flour as a jealousy offering and a reminder offering, which are really just alternative names for sin offerings, and which draw God's attention to the fact that some kind of wrongdoing is believed to have occurred. In what seems a bizarre ritual reminiscent of medieval ducking stools, the woman is brought by the priest to the tabernacle, where she is believed to be under the eye of God. Here, the priest is to fill a jar with holy water, before adding some dust from the ground to it. He must then loosen her hair and hand her the flower, while he keeps hold of the jar of water and dirt, which readers are told is cursed. The priest then invokes the curse, assuring the woman that if she has not had sex with another man, then the water cannot harm her. If, however, she has cheated on her husband, the priest orders her to become a curse among her people, to miscarry all her children, and for her abdomen to swell, an unknown medical condition, but one which outs her as an adulteress. To prove that she has nothing to fear if she is as innocent as she claims to be, the woman must consent to the process with an Amen. The priest then writes the curse onto a scroll before washing the words off into the jar of water, waving the flower in the direction of the most holy place, then burning a handful of it on the altar. This handful is seen as a reminder of what it is the woman has been accused of, and once it has been thrown on the fire, she must drink her cocktail of curses. 
If the woman is found to have been up to no good, then the power of the curse will weigh heavily on her, and any miscarriages or unexplained abdominal swelling will be seen by the community as a clear sign of her guilt. For the man, it seems doubly tragic. Not only is his wife betraying him, now that she is barren, she is robbing him of the right to be a father, and creating potential financial hardship should he feel the need to acquire a second, more faithful wife with whom he can at least raise a family. It certainly is an unusual law, as the husband's jealousy alone seems enough to warrant what for the woman is a humiliating ritual. On the plus side, a husband's suspicions alone cannot convict his wife, and allowing God to intervene is seen as fair. Also, it may be a case of no smoke without fire, where the community believes a woman is playing fast and loose with other men, and rallies to support the husband in his quest to find the truth, rather than priests pandering to paranoid men who suspect their wives groundlessly. As ever, the adulterous man who the woman might have been sleeping with appears to get away with his crimes without reproach. So, still no drama and still no action. Instead, a lot of information about tabernacle roadies and rules to prove or disprove a wife's infidelity. To many, it's incredible that a book that lulls this much is still an international bestseller. My hope is that you stick with this podcast during these becalmed chapters and that you share my fascination with the Jews' ancient traditions and the humanity behind many of their laws. Trust me, the action does pick up as we get properly underway. But first, preparations must be made as the mass of Israelites, now fully informed as to how God intends them to live alongside one another in a way that is pleasing to him, readies itself to break camp. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com.